Hello and welcome to Style and Substance, a branding and business podcast for inspired and empowered entrepreneurs. I'm Elizabeth Cairns and together with my fabulous co-host Fiona Humberstone, we're here to help you sidestep the hustle, keep joy at the forefront of your work and champion a more meaningful and sustainable approach to business. We'll talk about everything from purpose to productivity, from colour psychology to creativity, where to start and how to keep going, how to stay inspired, empowered, and more importantly, sane in the process. We hope you enjoy the show. And if you do, please like, share, subscribe, and keep listening. lovely listeners welcome back today we have a hopefully thoroughly inspiring episode i'm certainly really excited to talk to you about this and our topic today is writing a book and we've been asked by quite a few listeners to share some of our book writing and book publishing journey we've got three bestsellers between us and it's i know something that both of us are really passionate about and i get particularly excited not only about my own writing but i do a lot of this work with my clients so i'm really really looking forward to getting stuck in how are you lovely fee i'm very good i'm really looking forward to this because as you say it's a question that comes up a lot it's probably whether this is a good thing or just a an example of how bad my seo is it's probably the most searched for term <laughs> on my website is like all those posts I wrote about self-publishing a coffee table book are the posts that get the most traffic on my blog now that's not necessarily a good thing (laughs) as someone that wants people to come to her for branding it's interesting and frustrating (laughs) (laughs) highlights a bit of an opportunity for Zoe and I however there is a real interest I think in self-publishing those of us that love books and love being surrounded by books and find a lot of inspiration in reading and and physical art of picking up a book Mm. have that real yearning to create something of our own is that what you found I mean you work with a lot of clients on their books don't you yeah I mean there are definitely people who have either a lifelong seed a desire that's been sown in early childhood that this is something I really want to do or some people that come with the I think it's going to be great for my business and therefore I should but the Mm. ones that are really inspired and lit up and the ones who see it through are often those people I find that really appreciate what a book can bring and feel like they have something to say. I love that point and I want to get onto that later in the show about how do you know whether you've got something that's going to add value how do you create something that's worth sharing that is going to serve your clients as much as it serves your spark of creativity so we'll get into that but first of all I want to start with your journey so when did we publish the empowered entrepreneur when I say we I mean you (laughs) uh well no it was us um 2018 I think Right. Gosh. So that is six years ago now, five and a half years, because it was summer, wasn't it? Or maybe it came out in October. Well, do you know what the moment of truth was? And this was very intrinsically linked into my vision. The thing that pulled me through the writing of the book was 
we put them in the bags for Focus and Thrive as a gift oh, to the yes. participants in that October or that was November. November workshop, November workshop yeah. of that year. Because that was my aim, that when mm. we were stuffing the gift bags for the participants, that my book would go in there. What did that feel like? Oh, it was amazing. It was yeah. amazing. I, re- I remember so viscerally being in that room with you and that wonderful moment where we're, you know, prepping the space and we're getting the lovely bags out and and your books were there and my books were there and we were, because it was so clear in my vision that that's what I wanted to happen. Yeah. The actual realisation of it, the, the bringing to life of that, that was the thing that saw me through a lot of the writing process. It, I was high as a kite. It was extraordinary. Mm. Have you had anything like it since with anything that you've done for work? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, do you know, I don't know whether I have. No, I think it's a very specific project, product, process, undertaking. I don't think it's matched in anything I've done. You know, that sheer excitement and also the accessibility of it. You know, it's 20 quid, 30 quid. So it's it's something that everyone can get a piece of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because the journey of writing a book, and we'll get into this, is such a labour of love and it's such a, a huge personal as well as professional process. And also the, the difference between writing an ebook versus writing a tangible book, mm. the physical manifestation of all of that creativity and that work, you holding it in your hands There's nothing like it, I don't think. No, no, I would agree. So I want to get onto the process in a minute, but I'd love to understand, first of all, because you've hinted at this and we both know this, this is a big undertaking. And I know firsthand for you, there were a lot of lows as well as highs in that process. Mm. You've got to have a really, really big reason. And actually... I think this is going to be commercially important for my business is not going to be the thing that carries you through. So what was it for you that I suppose crystallized the fact that you needed to do it now, but also why did you want to write The Empowered Entrepreneur in the first place? Number of reasons. So firstly, I always wanted to write a book and I've had Mm. seeds of books in my mind and in my sketchbooks and in my journals for years and years and several manuscripts hanging around that might get polished up at some point. So I've always known I wanted to write something. And I think the thing with The Empowered Entrepreneur is the inspiration, the muse kept coming to me, and I couldn't shake it off. So Mm. it kept coming into my thoughts, it kept coming into my dreams, it kept coming into my imaginings. There was this sort of internal pressure that kept building up of, when are you going to do this? Come on, you need Mm. to be doing this. And I remember this pivotal moment where I had committed to writing the book and I'd written it in my journal. I think I've talked about this before, but I had this conversation with the book because all of a sudden the book took on an identity of its own. It was like there was a muse there. There was like a thing outside of me almost that I was in relationship with, that I was having a conversation with. And there sort of came this point where there was a sense of urgency because I thought, I do believe that ideas that are meant to be shared will present themselves to any number of people who can bring those ideas out into the world and Mm, interesting yeah Elizabeth Gilbert talks about this sometimes as well it's like the muse is sort of floating around and find somewhere to land 
And then there's a contract almost of sorts that gets made. And I remember writing my commitment to this book, Muse, saying, don't go anywhere else. I am going to do this. I am wow. going to do this. Do not go anywhere else. This is mine. And I wow. promise I'll do this as well as I can in my own voice and make this what it can be. And as soon as I made that verbal, emotional, spiritual, if you like, contract with it, that was it. It's like, okay, I've promised now that mm. I'm going to do this. And I think also in terms of the practical wise, because there were any number of books I could have written. I was writing a, a book a few years before about networking because I was doing a lot of networking and mm. I'd created this wonderful metaphor for networking, but it didn't grab me in the same way that the Empowered Entrepreneur did. And what I noticed was in my coaching sessions or in my conversations with people, the same themes would keep coming up, the same patterns that were holding people back. And I could see this philosophy, this sort of framework, if you like, being formed. And I mm. thought if everybody had just this foundational understanding, it would make things a lot easier. Because the other thing about coaching conversations is when you're doing pure coaching, which I did a lot more of before, is I'm not giving advice. No, I'm not sharing a philosophy. I'm not saying that there's a right way. It really is about facilitating that process for the client. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit egotistical, but I could sort of see some and, and people kept asking me, I could see some ways of looking at the world and some ways of looking at business that I thought if you had this mindset or this understanding or this awareness, it might be easier for you. So it was that sense of, I want to capture that. I want to capture this perspective because I didn't see other people looking at things in the same way then. Yeah. And ironically, you know, the seeds for this were sown a good 10 years before I wrote it. And it probably would have been a lot more pioneering if I brought it out 10 years earlier. Yeah, but it wouldn't have been as good, I don't think. No, I don't think so. It wouldn't have been beautiful and it wouldn't have been as wise because we were 10 years younger so the way that you write now I think is different to how you wrote back then I mean it's still your voice you're still the same person but I think there's a wisdom and a maturity and a probably a calm that's come in the last decade yeah definitely and I think a level of ownership of it as well yes I think I'm much more able to stand by it's not different thoughts it's not different a different expression of it even it's your take isn't it I think one of the other things that comes with time and experience is that we've maybe metabolized some of the things that have inspired us or informed us in our really early career mm-hmm. and we've really had the opportunity to develop our own ways of doing things our own processes our own perspectives our own insights so that actually what we're coming at the the reader with I guess is our own take rather than our own research yeah I think that's really important yeah so a lived experience of something I think is really important because as I say to a lot of the clients that I work with There's nothing really new under the sun. And this is definitely true of the philosophies underpinning the empowered entrepreneur. Mm. There's a lot of ancient wisdom in there that's been around Mm. for centuries. And I think when we write, we have an opportunity to show the reader the world through our unique lens, our eyes, our voice, our experience. 
And there is something about really owning that experience and living, sitting in it very authentically. That means that those books that create that sort of spark of magic of something that feels new or that feels like it's moved something on is really key because it's very easy to write any old book from research. It's very Mm. easy to just take a synthesis of other people's ideas and and sort of reskin it. But I think when you've lived with something and when you've really owned it and worked through it and challenged it and tested it, whatever it is, then it adds to the narrative of what's gone before rather than just regurgitating it in a different voice. Mm. So how long did it take you to write the book and how did you structure that process of writing? Good question. So the bulk of the manuscript, about 40,000 words of, I think about the 60, 70,000 that I wrote in the end was written in about four days. Wow. The reason for that was I had a break between Christmas and New Year when in 2017, 2018, when Mike was off And because we homeschooled the kids and I was running the business at that point in the after hours, I didn't have great big chunks of time, but I managed to buy myself four days, four days Mm. in a row of a couple of hours in the morning. And I thought, this is my shot. I've got to get the bulk of this nailed. Now, I came into that writing chunk with a fairly lengthy original draft, actually. I had accumulation of little bits of writing that I pulled in over the years. I had collected a couple of drafts of different manuscripts going in slightly different directions so I had a lot of word count behind me already Mm. and I hadn't at that point planned the structure of the book so I did have a very clear set of muses who I was writing for and the journey Mm. I wanted to take them on the A to B where are they coming in with this and where do I want to get them to Mm. and that got even clearer as I wrote I also, on reading the past writing, realised that it was a little bit dry, there wasn't a lot of life to it, and it didn't really capture the spirit of this this muse, this entity of the book that I was talking about before. And so I allowed myself the freedom to just tune into my inspiration, give myself the freedom of a first draft, uncensored first draft, and just write from my flow state for four days. And then I looked at that 40,000 words and that I knew was the backbone of the book. Mm. So it sounds like when you got into your flow state, it just came, it just flowed. Yeah. And most of the book, not all of it, but most of the small chunks of copy are largely unedited. As Mm. in, I mean, they're edited for, for tightening up, but there's not great big chopping and changing a round of paragraphs and moving stuff around and bringing things in and out. A lot of them were written in flow and therefore came out pretty fully formed, which saved me an awful lot of time. So my my effort in my process or my focus in my process was about how do I engineer this flow state? Because when I engineer this flow state in myself, it's good stuff. When mm. I don't and when I'm forcing it, everything takes a lot longer in the edit. Mm. and it becomes unwieldy and it doesn't have this sort of magic quality to it. I had this belief for a long time that I could only write in the mornings and I needed long stretches of time to get into my creative flow. 
Mm. And this was a really interesting journey because I realised that if I kept holding on to that belief, I was never, ever going to write a book because there was Mm. no way that I would have luxurious mornings free for endless stretches of months at a time to be able to indulge in this book. Mm. And also I had I had the gift of having a, a really good model in Mike, in my ex, because he is a prolific writer. He didn't have any of that limiting belief. He had a very different approach to me. He would make use of the five minutes of time. So he would take every waking moment, every spare moment. He'd take, you know, when we went on car journeys, he'd take the laptop and he'd he'd just write in the car. Mm. So seeing the evidence of the fact that I didn't need these long stretches of time, I could make it work, really helped. And so how did you decide what you were going to put in and what you were going to leave out? You said you had these clear muses. Was that the thing that really guided you? Yeah, definitely. When it came to the edit and I had all of this stuff to sift through, I ran it everything through my core muses. So Mm. does this make sense? And I, I think I had three or four for the book. Does this matter to them? Is this moving them from the A to B point? Is this adding value? And and it was that simple, really. So having the clear muses, having the journey, having having the clarity of the why, what this book has to do, why am I writing it, enabled me to sift through. And also, I think when we write, we can get really, particularly if we think it's really good, you know, <laughs> whether that's justified or not, it's another thing. But if we write something, and we think, oh, this is amazing. Yeah. We can become incredibly attached to it. And I think that a very difficult part of the process for a lot of writers is letting go of really good stuff because it doesn't serve what you're there to do and it doesn't serve Mm. the reader. So there's this intimate relationship with writing where, first of all, you're serving the muse and you're Mm. serving the book and you're serving yourself in a way and your inspiration. So there's a period of beautiful freedom where that all of that stuff comes out. And then if it's a book for business, that has to give way to the reader. And the reader has Mm. to take primacy and the purpose for the business has to take primacy. And you have to let some good stuff go. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I would argue, even if it's not a book for business, to make a book saleable, it has to have a clear purpose or a clear remit or it has to be doing something, I think. Otherwise, how on earth do you persuade people that it's worth spending their hard earned cash on? Yeah. And particularly if it's not, you know, literature for the sake of literature and it's not beautifully written in flowery, whatever language. Yeah, it has to have a purpose and people have to be able to describe the value of it, particularly for a business book. If someone's saying, why should you buy the empowered entrepreneur? Everybody will answer that differently. But there will hopefully be some tangible hooks that they can get. Exactly. Yeah. It does this for me. Mm. I mean, it's an amazing book. And it's one that I have gifted to clients for retreats or clients that are doing Elevate. Quite often I'll give that to them because for me, it gives them some really tangible, useful ways of working. I wonder what impact it's had on you and your business. Oh, it it's had a measurable impact. And I think interestingly, that impact is still revealing itself over time. Mm. So initially, it had the impact of really boosting my confidence in myself and that feeling you get when 
you set out to achieve something and you know it's going to take some grit and you do mm. it. Yeah. That builds muscle in the entrepreneur of confidence, of tenacity, of being able to stick with something, of being able to manifest something you set out. So the confidence as as a person of fortitude was built mm. just by the process of writing the book. And I think every book does that for everybody. Mm. Just seeing that through, just because they are often large projects that take mm. time and there's a number of opportunities where you can bail if you want to and lots of yeah. people do so yeah. it built that tenacity in me and that confidence in myself and the pride of that as well yeah I think from a business point of view I didn't write the book in order to make money mm. you know I'm very realistic about publishing and what publishing enables and if you want to make a lot of money from books writing one book is not the way to do it <laughs> <laughs> However, it has made money, paid for itself within the first month of launch, and it was quite an expensive production process. So, so that was good. So it's been making money ever since. Mm. The thing I love most is is gifting it to clients. Mm. I think it's definitely added to my credibility because being a published author and being a best-selling author does carry some weight. So rightly or wrongly, <laughs> just having that, I think, lends credibility to business. I think it generates work for me for a lot of people yeah. it's the first way in you know they come across my book or they gifted my book and then they seek me out yeah I think it's done a lot and I think yeah. you know I get invited to speak about it and it's given me a foundation to build on and develop in terms of my philosophy and my approach to business as well which is great amazing so would you do it again yes absolutely So let's turn the tables on you. Two fabulous books, How to Style Your Brand and Brand Brilliance. Why did you write them? Well, How to Style Your Brand I wrote because I, I just couldn't not. So I had set up this design agency in the noughties and was an avid collector reader of cookbooks, craft books, interiors books, gardening books. And was so inspired by all this beauty. And yet in the studio, and this is pre-Pinterest days, we had the full collection of letterhead and logo design books, mm. volumes one to seven. Um, and that was full. I mean, it, it literally was examples of letterhead and logo designs. <laughs> but it was really inspiring. And it was all we had. So they were beautiful and they were visually inspiring, but they didn't explain why, why to do something, how something worked. And then we had brand strategy books, but they weren't beautiful. Mm. And I could never understand why there wasn't a branding book that was as beautiful as all the books I had in my library, that was as practical as all the books I had in my library. And at the same time as all that was going on, I was doing a lot of speaking, I was doing a lot of teaching, and I was meeting a lot of prospective clients at these conferences and events that I'd speak at, you know, big ones at things like Excel. And people would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, that was so inspiring. I wish I'd found you six months ago. I've just spent this much money on my logo and I hate it. And I suppose a bit like you, I was just struck by this real sense of 
this is something entrepreneurs really need to know and they really need to understand. And mm. yeah, I mean, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I thought it would help me win new branding work. But it was kind of more genuinely from this place of wanting to inform and serve and just, I think this is the whole philosophy with my business, isn't it? Is that I want people to create incredible brands. I want them to have that experience of having a brand that really serves them. And and to do that, they have to understand how branding works and they need to avoid those kind of basic pitfalls. Mm, Yeah. So it was something I toyed with while I had the design agency. And I'm so glad that I never had the time. (laughs) Never had the time. Sold my business in 2012. Had Poppy. Had a lovely kind of nine months of just sheer bliss and not Mm. thinking about work, really. Then I started to think about what I would do when I went back into work. Mm. And... I just thought, well, it's now or never. Like, I'm never going to have this chance where I've got no clients. So I have to write this book. Mm, And I can't remember when I started it, but essentially I wrote for two hours every day while Poppy slept. Wow. And that was how I got it done. So you did it in four days. My hunch is I did it across about four, five, six months, two hours a day. And because my writing time was constantly getting cut short, I mm. maintained that sense of inspiration and momentum the whole time because I would be frustrated that I wanted to do more. And then, yes. you know, I'd literally sit down. The kitchen would be a mess. It didn't matter. I sat down and I wrote in that time. Yeah. yeah. How did you decide what went in and what stayed out? Because it was quite a quite a beefy editing process, actually, in the end, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. It was. I mean, the remit was very clear. I knew who I was writing for. I think one of the big struggles I had, which really made the edit difficult, was was I writing for brand designers? Was I writing for professionals or was I writing for entrepreneurs? And how did I decide what went in and also what my my take was you know I didn't want yeah. to say you have to outsource you have to work with a brand designer but also I kind of think you should if you can mm. I think if I was writing that now I would be a little bit more prescriptive about investing the money in a designer mm-hmm. but at the time so so there was sort of a a, a a muddy bit around you know we know we need to be very clear but what happens when it comes to the the logo design and and what do people need to know like people people need to understand what great design looks like so sort of working out who I was talking to there and was I teaching the designers to suck eggs was I giving the entrepreneurs too much information that that was a tricky line to tread and it was probably the start of us working together more on a a more close basis but equally you were very pregnant with Elian and Mm. um, I remember you did a great edit for me and it was also cut short because you just had a baby (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it was like, you know, yeah. 
yeah, it was interesting. But I, so I ended up self-publishing How to Style Your Brand purely because the business book publishers don't publish coffee table books and the coffee table books don't publish in the business space. So nobody wanted to touch it. But I did work with an amazing editor, Jo, who was invaluable, Jo Copestick, for her knowledge of the industry, her knowledge of how to pull something Mm. really beautiful together. But I guess what I was really keen on was that this really worked as a process. And I think you and I have sort of taken that through everything I've done with the online courses. You know, we really rigorously test the process and that is something that you don't tend to do when you're publishing a coffee table style book so that made it quite challenging because yes this wasn't just about the prose it wasn't just about the paragraphs or the word count it was like is this actually going to work yes yeah and I think that's the journey I often go on with a lot of clients who are developing their IP as they're writing or they're wanting to capture their IP it's an opportunity to be incredibly rigorous about yeah. does this actually stand up with this with this muse? Does this actually work? Which is why I think at so many levels, and I know it was for you, and again, when we got to Brand Brilliance, it can be really challenging. Yeah, and I suppose I wanted it to feel like a workshop in itself. I didn't just want it to be a collection of facts or everything mm-hmm. I know about branding. It had to pull together as something that would be quite transformative yes, and therefore it brings a whole new level of insight and skill and robustness and that's where working with you was invaluable particularly on brand brilliance because we did approach that quite differently Mm. so when it came to writing book number two Mm. what was easier about that after the experience with book number one well I guess with how to style your brand you know, I was given, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, given lots of advice that you're not going to make any money out of it. You're probably not going to sell very many. Mm. Um, but I was like, this is a book that needs writing. People need this book. I have to do it. But I, there was that real uncertainty around how it would go down. Um, mm. I had a lot of confidence because How to Style Your Brand was a phenomenal success I mean it was a bestseller for five years on a number one bestseller for five years on Amazon you know it sold wildly more than I ever could have expected and I think I went into Brand Brilliance with this very false sense of confidence because (laughs) I kind of felt like well I've proved myself as an author I've proved that I can add value I've proved to myself that there is a market for this therefore Mm the follow-up is bound to sell really well. And we Mm. created what I think is a much more robust, streamlined, powerful book in Brand Brilliance. Um, You know, I I don't know objectively whether that's just because the process of writing it wasn't as fraught. I got Mm -hmm. terrible imposter syndrome with her style brand particularly at that point where it was at the printers I mean that was pretty hideous I don't ever want to go back to that point (laughs) um it it really wasn't very nice at all and I never had that with brand brilliance 
Um, equally, it was probably a more measured experience. You know, there wasn't the highs or the lows. And I wonder whether that impacted on the sales. But, you know, ultimately, Brand Brilliance, I think, is a better book. I think there's huge value in Brand Brilliance. Um, mm. When I say a better book, I mean, I think it's written better. It's more robust. It's, you know, I think aesthetically, I think it's more beautiful. Mm. process of writing brand brilliance was so much easier which means that I feel very differently about that book interestingly commercially brand brilliance did not perform at a fraction of how to style your brand and continues to perform at a fraction of how to style your brand so that was also a bestseller I think for about a year so Mm. it was by no means a flop or a failure and the feedback has been amazing. Um, but one of the things Joe said to me was that second books always do worse because there's this kind of misconception that by the reader that they don't need both. I mean, you know, anyone that's written a book and has put themselves through that <laughs> process of writing mm. <laughs> knows that you would never publish a second book if it didn't bring something different to the table you just you, oh, you just wouldn't put yourself through that and as, yeah. as a self-publisher you would not give yourself that level of financial investment and exposure if <laughs> there wasn't a commercial need so like please if you're listening to this trust me you will get value from both books <laughs> <laughs> yes I can vouch for that for sure um what else made you opt for self-publishing over traditional publishing, aside from, if there was anything else, aside from the fact that, you know, you wanted a beautiful business book and there wasn't a space in the market for that? I mean, nothing. If a publisher had offered me a book deal, I would have taken it. That's the bottom line. Um, yeah, I mean... I was still in that space where I felt like self-published books were not credible. Mm -hmm. Yes, I remember several conversations about that. It's interesting. So I wanted that um, credibility, I guess, and that, what's the word? That approval. I don't know if that's Mm -hmm. the right word. Yeah. From a publisher. I wanted someone else to tell me that it was good. Yes. I didn't overly want the level of financial risk. I mean, I'm really Mm -hmm. well placed to publish a book. I'm a designer. I've got a print background. I'm very entrepreneurial, so I'm not averse to risk. But at the same time, I had sold a big design agency. I didn't, I had a very young family that I just wanted to be at home with and Mm -hmm. go a bit slower. I didn't really want that level of risk again I didn't really Mm. want to put a big chunk of our savings into a print run in China that I knew nothing about so had a publisher that I trusted and you have to bear in mind you know people tell these stories of like oh I sent 40 proposals off and they all no I didn't send 40 you know I'm a marketer I'm a brander I am not going to fire off 40 proposals in the hope that some publisher might be, you know, I might be lucky enough to be picked up. No, I had a hit list of three publishing companies 
that I felt my book was a good fit with. Mm. And one by one, they all said, it's a phenomenal proposal. It's a great idea, but we don't know anything about this market. We're not going to do it. Yeah. And I just could not not do it. There's a sort of vanity publishing element. I want a publishing house to pick up this book and to endorse it and to see that it's a value. But also, I think it's worth bearing in mind that publishers have a limited lens. They're looking at the industry through a very specific lens, a very specific viewpoint. And they're not, like you say, they didn't know your market. They're not as in touch with the end client on the ground for whom you know this book would serve. And I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think that can get in our way because if we're told that there isn't a market for it I don't necessarily think that the publishers get to decide that well I think what's interesting and and the way you need to look at this is publishers are not a public service organization they're a business like everybody else and I forget what the statistic is but I think I think it's something like four of five of every five books that are published lose money Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's about mitigating risk for publishers. And, yeah. you know, if you look at me, unknown author, I hadn't worked for Coca-Cola. So I, mm-hmm. you know, they were like, what the hell story are we going to tell around this person? She's only worked with hundreds and hundreds of small business owners. What, what how is that relevant to writing a book on branding for small business owners? <laughs> we need to have come from Procter and Gamble. So I think there was that. I think there was the fact that it was a market that they didn't have personal contact with. If I'd been a cookbook yeah. author, yes, that exactly. would be different because they would be able they would understand the market and they mm-hmm. would be able to see where I fitted in. And if I did, I mean it's a bit like saying to me, here's a tech startup go brand it, you know, go find the strategy for it and go brand it. That's not my space. I'm not going to touch that project. So I completely respect and understand why they took that decision. And it it worked out far better for me. The other thing that I thought was really ironic was, but again, totally understandable, was at the time I had 2000 followers on my Instagram feed. And Mm. they wanted influencers with 50 to 100,000 Because that's going to sell. You know, if you think only 20% of books are going to make it, they need to take every step they can to make sure that you're one of, you know, one of the one in five, not the the four in five. And if you've got 100,000 Instagram followers back in 2015, you were going to make them some money. Absolutely. And I think this is one of the things that people don't realise when they approach a publishing house is there's an assumption that the publisher is going to market and sell your book for you. And they don't. No, they don't. What they do do, they do have a great PR campaign. So I forget whose book came out at the same time as mine. I think it was Will from Bright Bazaar. And, Mm. you know, I was subscribing to about six magazines at the time and every single magazine, March 2015, contained a spread on Will and his book. And obviously, I was just relying on my mailing list of 500 when I sent it to print mm-hmm. and social media and the friends that I'd made to help me bring that to market. So it, it was a much 
tougher ask. I think the other thing, just touching on the difference between self-publishing and publishing, traditional publishing houses, is I could spend as much time as I wanted and as much money as I wanted on the production of the book. Now, that is potentially not a great thing, but it does make for a better book and a better experience because I didn't only have one day or three days to shoot the book. I didn't only yeah. have, you know, four days of book design time. Yeah. So I, I remember talking to Katie Tregidden, who at, the, at that time had worked with the Hoxton Mini Press and had published a couple of books herself. And she was saying to me, I think self-publishing makes for more interesting and better quality books quite often. I agree. Yeah, yeah, because you, you have that creative freedom and flexibility as well, yeah. like you say, to give it your all, because yeah. it's not being looked at in the context of all the other publications that are coming out from that house that they have to hedge their bets and, you know, limited yeah. time. Yeah, and I think that stigma of self-published books has gone, and I'd like to think that I'm a big part of changing that. You know, people are always surprised that my books are self-published. Yeah, and. Same. Yeah, I mean, that's down to the design and the photography and the print quality and really taking care over the production. Mm. So what's it done for your business? And that journey of 500 Instagram followers to where you are now and the size of your list, what impact would you say the books have had on that? Well, it, it I mean, it, it transformed my business at the start. I actually think it was quite overwhelming at the beginning I think if yeah. I look back at some of my my comments on my blog I kind of cringe a bit because people it really caught people's imagination particularly the color psychology and I didn't have the wealth of resources to help people learn that I do now so people were coming at me from all the quarters for free advice and I remember finding it absolutely overwhelming because I didn't really have any more days to work any more time to work I was still very much just working around Poppy's nap time so <laughs> I think you know it, it opened some incredible doors um, it put me in touch with clients all over the world I think it's really changed the landscape of branding I mean people call themselves brand stylists now you know things like that mm -hmm. it's yeah. it's really exciting and it, yeah, it's it's definitely opened lots of doors. You know, for a long time, the books were paying my mortgage. They, they were just selling themselves. I could barely keep up with demand. And there were quite a lot of times where we would run out of copies and we would have to print more and they'd take time to come over from mm -hmm. China. Yeah, I mean, really heady, exciting times. And and actually, it it did create that real energy and momentum within my business so if you could do the process of both of those books again is there anything with hindsight you would now do differently I mean I very much feel like you do your best with the knowledge that you have and when you know better you do better yeah and so you know how to style your brand yeah, crippling, crippling imposter syndrome, but the most enormous highs, and I'm really proud of it. So I know the answer to this, and I think a few of the listeners might, but are you going to do another one? 
Yes, I am. I feel like <laughs> I feel like I'm waiting for that pull to happen. And what's a bit frustrating is it happened and I missed the boat. Yes. You know, I couldn't make the time. At the moment, I feel like commercially I need to do this. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I guess, yeah, without getting into the nuts and bolts, it's a really sensible thing for me to do commercially, but that's not a reason to write a book. And that alone is not going to get me through the darkness because it, it is a dark, tough thing. You have to find resources that you didn't know you had. I've got to have that real can't not do it. Well, lovely listeners, as I'm sure you could hear, it's certainly been a journey for both of us in the writing of all these books, and we hope that you found some inspiration in there. Next week, we're digging into the practicalities and getting more into the details of the types of things we work through with our clients on book projects. So if you are thinking about writing a book, you're not going to want to miss it. See you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in to Style and Substance. We really hope you've enjoyed the show. You can find more information on everything we've talked about by heading to the show notes or by visiting our websites at thebrand-stylist.com or elizabethcairns.com. If you like what you've heard, we'd love a review. We're a brand new show and your support makes all the difference. You can like and subscribe as well as giving us what we hope is a well-deserved five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear what you think of the show too, so please do leave your comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes on our blogs. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Bye.